0: Hi there, you're listening to a new episode of What Are You Going To Do With That? the podcast of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, I'm a PhD candidate, and in each episode I talk with an early career researcher to learn about and from their academic journey. If you'd like to know more about our former guests, check out our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram accounts, so, just search for what to do with that or the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. In this episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Sophie Posodek. Sophie holds a Bachelor of Science in Biomedicine from the University of East Anglia and directly continued with her PhD in Molecular Biology at the same university at the Codrum Institute of Bioscience in Norwich, which she has just recently finished. Her research focused on nutrition and health, specifically on genetic control of cellular energy metabolism in the human liver and broccoli, which I think she will be able to explain much better during our chat than I will. A year into the PhD, Sophie was diagnosed with bipolar type 2 affective disorder, and this caused her to take a forced break, but she managed to get back at it. Sophie has guest lectured on the topic of science communication in which she focused on how to run successful outreach events and how students can develop their CV in science communication as a supplement to full-time study. She is also the founder and president of UEA Science Communication Society. And through this position, she brought together cross-disciplinary projects which showcase local research in its best light. Sophie is also the editor-in-chief of the Society blog. During her studies, Sophie has done many, many things on the side including a three-month internship in research communications with the MAID agency. She was a city coordinator for Pint of of Science, and she's a part-time model. And she also writes her own blog and is emerging as a social media influencer. So go out there and find her on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at infraredrum and follow her. Welcome to the show, Sophie, and thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me here on your podcast. It's very exciting to be part of a new podcast that I hadn't heard of before your team approached me actually.
0: You're very welcome. And thanks for taking the time. So before I get started with a few short questions, I got to pour myself my poison, which is amaretto that I brought with me. What are you having today?
1: I am actually drinking something quite decadent. I don't usually go for a hot chocolate with brandy at this time in the afternoon, but here I am. It's got whipped cream, which I'm sure is going to go lovely all around my lips and nose as, <laughs> as we're talking. Uh, but it's very delicious. And actually, this is my first time to try brandy. I was recommended to try this apres-ski, and it's delicious.
0: Yeah, it's good with chocolate. Oh, it's good. It's good.
1: This has been a very good excuse to try it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy we gave you one. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. There you go. I think everything goes well with chocolate, really. (laughs) So if you're ready for it, I have a few short questions. What is your morning routine like?
1: Uh, That's a really good question, actually. Um, Because my morning routine is different every day. Depending on my mood, Um, you mentioned in the introduction that I was diagnosed with bipolar type 2 disorder and the effects that that has on my mood, the effects of the medication, that really affects my morning routine actually and whether I'm able to get up and out of bed as I would like. Usually I'm a pretty early riser. I like to get up early in the morning and start my day with a brisk walk or just get right into work. Um, But unfortunately, side effects of medication and side effects of mood can sometimes make me quite lethargic, make it really hard to get out of bed. And that has definitely been a challenge throughout my PhD. um, with my research, how do you kind of get up and get to work early enough in the morning and and be focused for your experiments when you have this kind of lethargic side effect of medication? Um, but other than that, my morning usually starts with a cup of coffee. I love coffee. I'm pretty surprised I didn't choose coffee as my drink of choice today, um, but I do love my coffee. I, I just purchased a coffee machine just before lockdown. And it. to be honest, I don't think I could have got through lockdown without it.
0: So that was right in time. <laughs>
1: yeah, that was perfect timing.
0: <laughs> cool. Which social media app is your favourite and why?
1: Um, that's another interesting one. Um, because I'm, I'm quite um, keen on social media, um, have used social media for research communications, and I've given workshops on that. Um, I think my favourite social media is Twitter. Because the sheer volume of information you can you can get from Twitter, the number of people that you can follow. And, and I've also found it very supportive um, for science communication and for sharing scientific ideas and, you know, conference hashtags, things like that, which you don't really get with Instagram. To me, Instagram serves a completely different purpose. I still love it, but Twitter is my favourite, particularly since I became a researcher.
0: I think... That I recognize what you're saying about it being such a positive community, like people do really interact with each other much more than other platforms I've been using.
1: Yes, I have when it comes to science communication, I have a love hate relationship with Twitter, because it's great for engaging other researchers with science communication, but it's not great for reaching the general public. You kind of create this bubble where communicators follow communicators and researchers follow researchers. And unless you break a certain threshold of followers, you are never going to reach the general public with your your Twitter communications of your research. Unless you're very lucky, of course. Um, I think you have a better chance of doing that with Instagram. But yes, Twitter is an extremely supportive environment uh, from my experience for any budding science communicator or or any researcher who wants to connect with the community because of things like hashtag PhD chat, hashtag SciComm. I I came into contact with your podcast via Twitter of course and um, also conferences and institutes are really jumping on the Twitter bandwagon and starting to use hashtags to promote their conferences online and what's going on at, at the conferences online and celebrate the conferences online, which of course, Instagram is not quite, uh, you know, there's certain issues around photographing presentations, photographing people, it's a bit more difficult. So yeah, my 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 relationship with Twitter is is kind of love hate when it comes to my interest in science communication. But overall, it's my favourite social media platform, and you can find me there at Infrared Rum. Exactly, we'll
0: remember that. <laughs> All right, what is your favourite thing about the place where you live?
1: Oh, there's so many wonderful things about Norwich. So Norwich is quite a small city in the east of England, and it's quite historic. Um, it's quite quaint. It's very English and when I moved to Norwich for my studies I moved from a smaller town so I think my favourite thing about Norwich is that it's, it's manageable, it's small, it's not overwhelming, it's not a city of towering buildings, it's a city of historic buildings, cobbled streets and it's just beautiful.
0: Sounds really good. Maybe when the lockdown is over I'll be able to see it one day. It, it is a lovely part of England.
1: If you're ever in England, any listeners, Norwich is a wonderful place to visit and it's very near the seaside. Nice.
0: <laughs> I like that last part. <laughs> what movie can you rewatch over and over again?
1: Oh, See, I've got quite a dark taste in films. And whenever people ask about my favourite movies, they start looking at me really weird because they usually involve murder or espionage. But a film that I really, really love and find weirdly relatable is a film called Nightcrawler. Um, It's got Jake Gyllenhaal in. I absolutely love Jake Gyllenhaal. I could watch him over and over again. (laughs) But the film, the basic premise is someone starting up their own business and sort of getting a side hustle. And he does some really suspicious things to kind of get his business off the ground and I've always really related to that desire to side hustle and um try and fake it till you make it and so I I really love that film I think it's great it's a bit dark but it's great
0: I'll add it to my list (laughs) as a health and a nutrition researcher where do you shop for food
1: admittedly I shop at my local supermarket just wherever is closest um But that's kind of because I don't have a car, and so driving further afield is a little difficult. I cycle everywhere. Um, I've said that Norwich is quite a small city. It's very cycle-friendly, and that's my mode of getting around. So I just shop at my local supermarket, but I'm quite fortunate in that... Even though we do have a few chain supermarkets, like national scale uh, in the area, we've also got a supermarket that's local to my region. So I feel a little bit better about shopping there because even though it's a supermarket, it's still a local business. And I still feel good about making those purchases and and supporting essentially a local business. Fair enough.
0: And then how many groceries can you really take on a bike, right? I mean, even though I'm Dutch, I've always struggled with this.
1: That's very true. I've I've definitely overloaded my bike many times and looked a little bit silly cycling down the road. But it's okay, I don't care.
0: (laughs) All right, thank you so much for sharing. Now I'm ready to dig into the main part a little bit deeper. And let me start with saying that I'm very glad that we have another woman in STEM on board. But would you explain what motivated you to study biology? And why other women should be inspired to do the same.
1: Um, so what motivated me to study biology? Um, I mean, I was I was quite clever at school. I got decent grades. And if I'm honest, biology was not my strong point. Actually, it was my weakest science. My strongest subject was history and also English literature. I was quite good at literature, quite good at art. I didn't naturally fall into the category of, you know, scientist in terms of my grades when I was at school. Um, but... In my later school years, my grandmother got very ill and my mum and me became the sort of carers to her um, in her final weeks and days. And I was fortunate enough to get an internship, a work experience at the hospital to which she was admitted. So not only could I see the impact that this illness was having on my family, in a very personal way, I had an insight into the hospital and just developed a real interest in diseases. I know that sounds really strange, but I developed a really strong interest in people and a really strong interest in illnesses and preventing illness. Um, I briefly wanted to study medicine, but I think on reflection that wouldn't have quite been right for me. I'm really glad that I went down the route for molecular biology because it gives me the opportunity to look into these human diseases and how we can prevent them with the precision and the detail that really makes me feel excited to do what I do. And really I think I think I think more women should enter the field because Even though at a workforce level, there are quite a lot of women in my field. Um, When I look around the lab, there's a lot of female faces. There isn't an awful lot of diversity in terms of ethnic backgrounds and different types of people that enter the field in my personal experience, in, in the people that I've worked with and in the workplace I have experienced. And therefore, diversity and women in STEM haven't really made it to the top yet um, a lot of management is still predominantly male still predominantly white and I think that really needs to change and the only way that can change is by having inspiring young women come up and really show themselves show their talent for what they do and and succeed in getting employed into their the higher rankings the the management and even though there are things that we need to do in institutionally to make sure that that happens we also need to make sure that fantastic candidates are coming forward for those positions when they arise, you know?
0: Right, so the women are actually out there, they're choosing to study what you've also studied, um, but somehow they're not going through that glass ceiling.
1: Yes, I think in, in my experience, in the workplaces that I've experienced, there are a lot of women who work in the lab as fantastic research assistants, fantastic molecular biologists, fantastic postdocs, um, and there are those fantastic group leaders as well, but I think it's going to be a while before we see that really trickle um, trickle up rather than trickle down in to management at an institute level um, or at a university level. I don't know whether there is I mean clearly there's more that we can do to make sure that those positions are more um, available to the the women who weren't applying for them. I'm sure there are other factors at play as well. But in in my workplace, I can see a lot of fantastic women who inspire me every day. I would just like to see more of them in management.
0: Me too. Cheers to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, cheers to that.
0: (laughs) I noticed that you skipped an MA and that you went directly from the BSc to the PhD. And how does that work? Is the system in the UK different?
1: Yes. So in the UK, you can, if you've got really good grades for your BSc and you've done a research project, you can pretty much go straight on to a PhD. That isn't always the case. It depends on your, I, I found it depended on the funding body, whether the PhD is three or four years long and, and the specific institute as well. And, and the field, I think it's less common in the humanities, so I hear, than it is in the sciences. But if in the sciences you've really shown that technical skill early, you will get accepted onto a PhD programme if you impress an interview. That said, it sounds like really great. It sounds like you save loads of money on your ex- <laughs> not having to take an extra degree and ec- lots of time. But I think you really do pay for it in terms of when you arrive to start your PhD, you're that little bit less experienced and you do have to work really hard. You do have to really knuckle down and it can be a bit overwhelming. Uh, But yes, the system is such that you can do that in the UK.
0: So would you say that you felt like maybe you were missing some tools that would you have done an MA you would have had? I mean, it's always an if, right? Because you don't actually know what you would have learned during an MA.
1: Yes. So when I... at the point of starting my PhD I had only had a total of 16 weeks lab experience which isn't a lot for anyone who's done any lab work that's really not a lot so I'd done an eight-week summer internship in a lab in the second year of my BSc and I'd done an eight-week project in the third year of my BSc so I'd done two very short-term projects and anyone who's mentored students will realise that when you give a student a short project like that, it's because you know certain things are going to work. So I had been given these short-term projects where the protocol was optimised. I just got to follow the recipe, essentially, and get some results and show that I could interpret them. And that didn't really prepare me for the intensity of a PhD. That didn't really prepare me the The failures of protocols and the learning of new equipment, perhaps you know, being the only person trained in a certain protocol in my institute, not having anyone to guide me. Those things are pretty essential to a lot of PhD projects, Um, but I wasn't really prepared for that with my mere sixteen week experience. To be honest, I think a master's would have been beneficial to me as a researcher. However. I may not continue as a researcher going forward and therefore it may not be valuable to the my career more holistically. But I think I think looking back, if I'd taken a master's, would I have completed a PhD? I'm not sure. You would never know with hindsight. You would never know. So um, I'm just happy that I did what I did and that I'm here now at the end of my PhD project and um, looking forward to a, a future as a scientist
0: that sounds like a very healthy answer
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I've had had a while to think about it
0: (laughs) (laughs) right do you want to try and to explain what your research was about to someone who doesn't have a background in STEM like me
1: yeah of of course so um, my research as you mentioned is in um, diet and health so I'm a molecular biologist with a focus on nutrition Um, molecular nutritionist if you if you will And my research focuses on the bioactive, that means the biologically active compounds that we can derive from our diet and how they promote human health. So I focused on um, a few compounds uh, specifically from broccoli and how they may benefit human metabolism. That's the usage of fats and, and sugars as an energy source. And the kind of big goal the the dream for that would be to find a way that these bioactives can prevent diseases like cancer cardiovascular disease and diabetes but of course that's the big picture my work was on a cellular level and a molecular level and was actually very basic very um very new so that that's that's the dream and my research was just just the beginning of that bigger dream
0: all right in a bit we'll talk about um What happened to that dream and what your plan is in the future, but I'm saving this for a bit later. I actually wanted to talk about that you were diagnosed with bipolar only one year into your PhD and that must have been a pretty rough time. Are you comfortable with telling us more about what bipolar is and what you went through at that time?
1: Mm -hmm, Of course, so I've been very open about my diagnosis of bipolar disorder because At the time of my diagnosis, I realised that I couldn't really see any other scientists that were like me. Um, It seemed to be, if there were scientists who had this diagnosis, they were keeping very quiet about it. And I wasn't sure how to proceed and how to learn to manage my condition, but also learn to manage a PhD. Um, So I'm very happy to talk about that further. Bipolar type 2 disorder is a mood disorder. It's uh, characterised by extremely high and extremely low moods. So it used to be called manic depression. Some people may have heard of it called manic depression before. The type 2 part comes in the presiding depression. So most of my mood issues are due to low mood rather than high mood. And, And that's really... That the low mood was really the challenge that I was facing, particularly at the time of my diagnosis. But so I was—I was only a year into my PhD, and I was 22 years old. So I, I like like we said, skipped the masters. I was still quite young, and um, just figuring out who I was as a person, uh, but also as an academic and as a. I, you know i'd I'd been diagnosed with this condition and effectively become disabled overnight and had to really learn to to navigate that as a minority um in stem and it was it was very scary, but it's been a character forming experience and I think I've learned a lot and I think I have a lot to share so any I'm happy to take any questions on that to be honest
0: All right maybe let's begin at the start. How did you get to a doctor or someone who was able to test you positive on this? Like what made you go through that?
1: Okay, so I had, I've had mental health problems on and off since I was quite young, really. And it was always put down to being bullied at school, or not having a lot of self esteem, perhaps being a bit anxious, um, being the sort of person that tries a bit too hard, or um, is a bit too enthusiastic, or you know it was put down to these quite benign other factors when i was when i was a teenager it was put down to tantrums my parents would think i had tantrums but as I, get, I entered into my 20s people started to realize okay she's not having teenage tantrums she's not a child anymore and this is still happening and it it just so happened that i think my phd was a fundamental part of me becoming diagnosed because the same thing happened to me as happened to many other PhD students. I started to work very long hours. I wasn't sleeping a lot. I wasn't eating a lot. And I just started to get increasingly strange ideas about things. I won't go into exactly what they were. But I think at work, from a work perspective, I was just trying really, really hard. But I uh, privately, there were other things going off in my mind that were increasingly unusual, and this culminated in a quite public breakdown at work. Um, I was actually at work. I was I was actually in the lab when I started to, I mean, excuse the word, but go crazy. I just I just lost it. I snapped, and uh, my supervisor and peers, friends, they said go home and. Go see a doctor and and have some rest. And I did see a doctor, and within weeks I was diagnosed as bipolar.
0: I'm sorry it had to come to that. Even though it seems that there were earlier signs also throughout your childhood, uh, and teenage years, to really get to that point of an absolute breakdown, to actually be diagnosed.
1: That's true. Yes, it was. It was. It was sad and it was scary. But it, I think the scariest thing for me at that time was not my own experience, it was how others were reflecting on my experience. So I remember that day, and I remember someone approaching me and saying, don't worry, every PhD student goes through this, this isn't unusual, we all have a first year breakdown. And for the first time in my life, even though I had suffered with mental ill health for quite some time, I was in the majority, the majority of PhD students around me were also experiencing stress, anxiety, perhaps not to the degree that I was. Uh, My situation was quite unique. But everyone had cried in front of their supervisor or had a bit of a meltdown, had to go home early because of the stress. And that really shocked me, even more so than my own experience. It shouldn't be like that, right? No, it shouldn't.
0: So after being diagnosed and having gone home, like having been told right by your peers and your supervisor to ho- go home how did you manage to come back
1: so the process of coming back to work was difficult because you you leave for a period of rest and you recuperate you get your diagnosis which is going to be with you for a lo- for life perhaps and then you try to return to work and you meet with your occupational health team and they say are you better and you say no, I, I have a diagnosis now that may be with me for life. And then they say, well, how can I let you back into the lab? And I didn't really see that coming. I didn't realise how difficult it would be to return to work with that diagnosis. Um, but I did return to work. It was allowed um, without too much resistance. But then once you're, once you're back to work, you have to deal with all the misunderstandings about your... Illness. So, for example, um, I, I mentioned that I have bipolar two. So, I have predominantly depressive episodes, and sometimes I, I admit, sometimes as part of that, I get thoughts of self harm. And a lot of people at work couldn't distinguish between those thoughts of self harm and my safety to be in the lab. If I'm a person who's experiencing these destructive thoughts, could I be a danger in the lab? And to me, that that was that was obvious that. I wasn't a danger. These are just thoughts. They're extremely traumatic, but they are just thoughts. And I'd lived for 22 years with these thoughts and never acted upon them. And that doesn't detract from how distressing they are. But to me, of course, I'm safe to be in the lab. I just want to live a normal life, get on with my job and be successful. Um, But there was a little bit of resistance there because people didn't understand what I was going through. So there was really the two challenges in coming back to work. There was the initial challenge of actually proving, though I am ill, I am well. And proving or explaining to people what the illness actually is. Because there are a lot of misconceptions about bipolar, I think, in the media and and online.
0: Do you feel like you've had a very lonely experience as a PhD researcher because of this? And like the communication with others who might not understand what's going through?
1: (laughs) So initially, it was very lonely. I looked at my workforce and I couldn't see anyone like me. I saw people who were stable and clinical and efficient, and I was none of those things at that time. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't be a scientist. I'm not made to be a scientist. But then I started speaking out about mental health and mental well-being in the workplace. And all of a sudden, I became a bit of a spokesperson for PhD students who were suffering with mainly depression and anxiety because that was a large part of my bipolar. It was not all of my bipolar but it was a large part of it. So I became sort of a spokesperson for the majority even though I was a minority and I started to, it was strange, I would be in the canteen at work minding my own business making a cup of tea and someone would come up to me and say I'm feeling really down today, or I'm feeling really anxious about this experiment. And they would feel because I had spoken out, they could come and and speak to me. So actually, even though it was lonely at first, it became... I I started to find my community. And I mentioned as well on Twitter, being my favourite social media platform, there was a lot of support for me on Twitter in speaking about mental health. And therein it felt a lot less lonely.
0: So speaking up really had you connect to others who actually maybe secretly felt in a similar way yes
1: yes there were instances (sighs) where where students had not told anyone else in fact there was an instance where a student had not told anyone else that they were also potentially bipolar and came to talk to me and it made me realize that there are people like me in stem and they are doing well they're just perhaps not talking about it in the same way that i was
0: well, I'm very glad that you're talking to us today, and I hope we'll reach a lot of people out there that can learn from your experience. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, would you talk a little bit about what your daily life looks like, being bipolar, right? And then uh-huh. also doing the PhD or trying to like pursue this particular career in which you have no role models, as you've mentioned.
1: <laughs> so I my daily life, as I mentioned, starts with my morning routine and... I mentioned when I when I talked to you about my morning routine, that I have a lot of sedative side effects of the medication I take for my bipolar. So now I've managed to adjust that a little bit. I'm actually in remission, I'm on less medication. So I'm doing really well, it's all really great. But at times, I've been, you know, really struggling to Get up and get to work before midday because of the effects of my medication. So, my morning routine usually involves a lot of coffee. I mentioned my love for coffee, and that is why. That's right. Um, I would usually, towards the, the end of my PhD, I was more office based. I did a lot of bioinformatics. So, I was working on my computer, sifting through vast amounts of data, genome data from sequencing experiments I'd done. So my day actually was quite monotonous towards the end of my PhD. It would be, you know, a million coffees in the morning to try and wake up, followed by staring at my computer and trying to make sense of all this data. But these days, um, we're actually in lockdown, Uh, we're just coming out of lockdown here in the UK. And um, my day is pretty much the same as it's been, except I'm in my own home, rather than um, in, in the office at work. And rather than looking at vast amounts of data and trying to condense it into one graph or one histogram, I am now just looking at vast amounts of words as I try and do the final bits of formatting on my thesis. All right,
0: congratulations!
1: <laughs> Thank you! Because
0: you're almost done, right? If you you're handed it in already? yes
1: yeah, so, so it, it was... Um, my hand-in was due actually at the end of April and then the virus happened, so it delayed my hand-in slightly. Um, but I'm just in the final bits of, of formatting and, and do to submit my thesis. Um, well, as soon as possible, really, as soon as the formatting's done.
0: All right. So you faced some very serious struggles, including finding out who you are, right, at this young age, doing a PhD um, and learning about uh, being bipolar. But you also managed to get back on the horse and you're almost done with it. So I do want to cheer to that. There you go. Thank you. Cheers. If there's any of your chocolate brandy left.
1: Oh, there's there's a nice bit of brandy left at the bottom. <laughs> nice.
0: Um, but looking back on it again, what tips would you have for people who are just starting their PhD?
1: I would say to anyone starting their PhD, don't be disheartened if you face adversity, because we all do. Whether it's illness or bereavement or just challenging experiments, challenging relationships in the workplace, we all experience something. No one sails through their PhD. And don't be disheartened if you face adversity, because if you really want to complete your PhD, if you really want to become a doctor, you will, you will find a way through it. We all do.
0: And it's also okay to talk about the things that are less nice about doing a PhD yeah, of instead about only the successes.
1: Of course. Of course. I think um, no one goes through their PhD and loving every minute, thinking that it's all great and without any hitches. It just doesn't happen. You know, life happens and life is full of, of these things. It's It's part of the joy of living is not knowing what's around the corner. Um, And we shouldn't be ashamed of the adversity that we face because it's not a reflection on ourselves. It's, It's just part of life.
0: And what do you think that universities really as institutions can adjust to better help researchers, especially the younger ones and PhD candidates who are trying to find their way through it?
1: I think universities can help by engaging with open discussion about graduate student mental health and the mental health of research staff as well. Um, you know it doesn't doesn't all just miraculously go away and get easier when you become a staff member and stop being a student. The universities really need to engage in actively, um, not just passively actively in conversations about mental health and it has been incredibly beneficial at my own university when there has been a dedicated graduate student mental health advisor. That means that graduate students don't have to fight for the same well-being advisor's time that all the undergraduate students have to fight for and that advisor can be well-versed in graduate student issues which are different to undergraduate issues.
0: All right yeah sounds like something we do have to change and I've heard similar things before from other guests so I think we're all on the same line here something just really has to change. Let's see if maybe the corona will give us an opening to actually start over who knows.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly at my university, there's been a lot of awareness and a lot of support for graduate student mental health during this time because it's been incredibly stressful for all of us. And I'd just like to see, you know, that awareness continue beyond coronavirus and um, become normalcy.
0: Right. Next to actually doing the PhD, you've been doing a lot of side projects, including modelling which I found very interesting, because I never met anyone who's done that before. <laughs> um, but you've also been very focused on science communication. And you've started a startup called Pomegranate, right?
1: Yeah, so I I mentioned that bipolar is these sort of this, this dichotomy of ups and downs. And while there have been the downs during my PhD, there's been lots of ups as well. And At times you do have to kind of rein in your energy and think, hey, am I taking on too many side projects here? Am I getting ahead of myself? Am I letting my sort of hypermanic state dictate um, the choices that I make? But I am a little bit of a go-getter and I do like a bit of a side hustle. I find it very motivating and very exciting to try new things. And especially if it's out of my comfort zone, I find that very exciting.
0: Right. And sometimes it's very important to focus on something else Yeah, absolutely. than only the PhD, right? And, and academia that often comes with rejection, having worked very many hours into a paper, for example, that then gets rejected. Like it's good to then in the end of the day, maybe do some sports or have a hobby that you can also really put all your energy in to let go of everything else.
1: Absolutely. And I I think you you mentioned sports there and sports are so helpful for any graduate student in terms of mental health. If you can do some light exercise or or if you're into it, more intense exercise, it's really good for your mental health.
0: What kind of sports do you do?
1: Um, Well, before lockdown, I was quite a regular gym goer. But since lockdown, less so, I've been trying to get out and go for a run or use my resistance bands where possible. But it's so much harder when you're at home, so much less motivating.
0: I hear you definitely. (laughs) It's tough. Hopefully everything will open up again soon. So talking about these projects, also other things in sports and science communication and your startup. I'm actually very curious about the answer to my last question, which is what is your next project and what are you going to do with that?
1: Uh, So my next project is probably going to be my startup. I was very fortunate a couple of weeks ago, only a few weeks ago, to attend a course sponsored by EIT Food, the Global Food Ventures Programme, which helps researchers, early career researchers, think about starting up their own business in the agri-tech or agri-food industry. And I just applied for this course pretty much because I'd seen a friend do it the year previous and I'd seen a positive effect on the way she did her presentations and the way she approached her research. So I thought, I'll give it a go. It's out of my comfort zone, but hey, I like that. I'll give it a go. I thought I would have handed my thesis in by that point, of course, but then the virus happened. So it became an online course that I was doing alongside my thesis writing. And it really got me starting thinking about entrepreneurship. And I realised that a lot of the challenges that I'd faced during my PhD and a lot of the ways I'd circumvented those challenges were in line with an entrepreneurship personality and an, an entrepreneurial approach. So I thought, hey, I'll give this a go and discovered that I really enjoyed it. And um, I won't give away too much about what my startup is because it's in a very, very early stages, but it's essentially in the health and wellness sector And so I'm continuing my interest in nutrition and and health and food. And I've been very fortunate to be fast tracked onto the next stage of the Global Food Ventures program to pursue my business idea a bit further. So I'm just sort of working on that in my spare time whilst I'm finishing my odd bits of formatting here and there, my thesis. And it, it is likely that that will play a bigger role in my life as my thesis winds to a close
0: so an exciting new project's coming up
1: yes it's very exciting
0: I saw you already opened a uh, Instagram account for it how can we find it
1: yes yeah, so the the Instagram account for my startup is pomegranate app you should be able to find it as pomegranate app on Instagram and um, really it's like when you um, when you start a new project which bit do you do first and as, as the name gives away, this project is a, an app. I'm developing an app. And um, a key part of marketing an app is having a social media presence on, on Instagram or on Twitter or, or whatever. So that people who are already using their phone and, and installing apps are, are seeing what you're doing and, and it's already on their radar when you go live. So it's in its very early stages But hopefully you'll be seeing more on that account in the coming weeks and months as I start to develop my business idea and start to find collaborators, start to build my minimum viable product and pitch for investment, etc. All
0: right. I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you. I'd like to wrap up with another few short questions. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. (laughs) All right. The first one is, what was the most significant conference that you've been to?
1: The most significant conference I've been to was the last New Go Week conference. And it was significant for me because it was the point I realized that it might be my last conference. It might be my last conference as a PhD student or perhaps ever. Like I say, I was supposed to submit my thesis in, in April. So by the time the next round of conferences came, I would have been done. And had it not been for the virus, of course, the conferences may have been going ahead and I I would have been finished. And it it was during that conference that I really looked around the room, saw all the amazing researchers that I had the opportunity to network with and speak to and all the amazing research. And I thought, I'm going to miss this. And I think ever since then, I have looked for a way to stay involved within the nutrition and health research community. And a large part of that motivation informed my choice to build my app, really, and and stay part of the conversation, stay part of, of the community in the hope that maybe one day I'll attend the conference again as as a delegate from a company, rather than a researcher with a poster,
0: that's exciting. So, which scholarship took you a lot of effort to apply for? Have you received any grants or scholarships?
1: Um, I, of course, received my my PhD studentship funded, but other than that, I have only received a some a scholarship from uh, Primer Design. I think it's a it's a company that that sells um, reagents, and they sponsored me to the tune of free reagents and free training and stuff like that. I, I applied for that in, in the first year of my PhD, prior to the bipolar diagnosis actually. But the challenges of my disability have made it very hard for me to, 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 to write things, to be honest, because I'm so sleepy all the time because, <laughs> because of my medication. So it's been very hard to write for my PhD and write applications. So since then, it's, the, the grants have been very dry, I've got to say. But that doesn't frighten me going forward and applying for, for grants for my business because I know I'm a good communicator when I'm able. And um, after my PhD, when I have more time to focus on something else, I'm confident that I, well, I, I'm hoping that I'll, I'll receive more. But it was that Primer Design sponsorship in my first year of my, um, my PhD that really made me feel like, I was I was becoming successful <laughs> at the time.
0: <laughs> but you already had the the scholarship for the actual PhD, so it wasn't like extremely necessary to get something in addition.
1: That's true. My 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 PhD was fully funded and I was very fortunate to have been funded for 4 years with the the doctoral training partnership here in the UK. Um so that was a big achievement and um yeah. But it I, but for some reason that primer design scholarship made me really feel you know when you're in your your first year of your PhD, you get your first award or accolade and you think, yeah, I'm I'm the boss here.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's good and you deserved it because you got it. So <laughs> congrats. What do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field?
1: The contribution that I try to make every day in raising awareness for mental health in academia, but I th- I still love my project and I still think that the greatest contribution I've made to my field is my project research, which is on specific bioactives found in broccoli and how they benefit human metabolism. So for those who aren't familiar with the nutrition and health uh, research community, there are those bioactives which are very highly studied and very famous um, for their effects against cancer or cardiovascular disease or diabetes. But then there's those bioactives that no one's really looked at. And I was lucky enough to investigate three bioactives that no one's really looked at in this context before. And my research showed something really exciting, really interesting and really new. It's not published yet, so I can't tell you exactly what. But what I will say is look out for the paper because to me, it was really exciting to have been part of that. And I really think that there's a lot of opportunity going forward.
0: Do you have a title ready yet?
1: The title of my thesis is very general. Um, The title of my thesis is is pretty much, um, you know, pertaining to the investigation of sulfur-containing bioactives derived from broccoli and their effect on human metabolism. But it's the paper that I'm really excited to write, where things can be a little bit more niche, and I can get to the point, I, no one's going to read my thesis in full apart from me, my supervisors and my examiners. Uh, I don't expect you guys to go and read my thesis in full. But um, I'm excited to write the paper talking about those unknown bioactives and the effects that we've found. Because I think that's that's going to be exciting for the community when that comes out, I think. Maybe it's my ego, but... <laughs> oh, I'm
0: sure it's not. Everyone is doing their PhD to actually contribute something, and that's why they get the title, right? So yeah. it's only normal for you to have yeah. something like that.
1: I think it's, you, you should always be excited about your own research. The, the point exactly. where you're you, too humble about your own research, you have to question whether you're really excited enough about what you do.
0: Right. Uh, who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished?
1: Uh, who has impressed me most with what they've accomplished? I've got to say my my PhD colleagues constantly surprise me with what they can do. Every time someone achieves a new protocol or presents at a new conference, I've got some really talented friends. And sometimes I'm just so proud of them for, for what they've achieved. Particularly, you know, when you see a friend present at a conference and they do really well or they win a prize. I think it's my... My, my PhD colleagues, the people in my group, the people in my, my cohort that um, really inspire me because they're, they're all so different and they're all talented in different spheres of science. Some are great communicators, some are great researchers, some are both, some are great innovators and, and that really inspires me.
0: That's pretty cool. Tell them all to listen to this episode.
1: <laughs> I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. I'll tell some of them to come on, on the podcast if you're looking for more guests.
0: <laughs> right. We're always welcome, I have to say. <laughs> then my last question really is, how do you relax after a hard day of work?
1: Okay, this is where people start to look at me like I'm strange again. I mentioned my love of films being a bit dark. Well, wait till you hear this. My, <laughs> my idea of relaxing from a long day is listening to podcasts uh, about true crime I am obsessed with true crime I don't know if it's the scientist in me but I love details I love facts about cases I love to follow cases cases that are happening in the media today cases that happened 100 years ago I am obsessed and I have my favorite true crime podcasters or true crime youtubers who I just love to listen to Reciting gruesome facts about horrible crimes, but I find it really relaxing.
0: Any recommendations?
1: Ah, yes, I am completely obsessed and listen to almost every day a woman called Stephanie Harlow, who is a YouTuber and and she she covers true crime content. And I just find her voice really relaxing. I find her really a great. I just I find her a really great person. She's achieved a lot and. She does. she's really thorough and really in-depth and I think the scientist in me likes and appreciates the amount of effort she puts into finding the facts and getting the facts together.
0: All right, well, thanks again so much for joining us today, Sophie, and for sharing your interesting journey with us. And I'd also like to thank our listeners. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to check out our guests, the former ones, but also the future ones. And we'd appreciate a like and a share very much. Also, don't forget to follow Sophie at infrared rum on Twitter and Instagram. I have another question, something on the side really. What is this a pint of science? Oh you
1: don't know what pint of science is? Oh you're missing out. So Pint of Science is an international festival of public engagement that gets real-life researchers to come into pubs and bars all across the world simultaneously to talk to the general public about their research. So I was coordinator of Pint of Science in my city for three years. Um, I've just handed over the coordinate coordinatorship to two other fantastic communicators. Um, but it happens in cities all over the world. It probably happens near you. If you're listening to this, it probably happens near you. Um, and it's just a way to build trust between the public and the researcher it gives the researcher an opportunity to share the latest in their work with a general public audience and it gives the the audience an opportunity to ask the researcher questions it's it's kind of like a, a one big celebration of science to me it happens over three days in mid-may every year apart from this year because of the virus right. um but it's it's a fantastic three-day event um, of talks, quizzes, fun activities, generally aimed at an adult audience, but it's also good for you know, younger people if they have you know, a mature mind for science or you know, the desire to learn. It's just great. Just go on their website, pintofscience.co.uk, if you're in the UK, of dot wherever you are, and um, check out what events they've got coming up, I think their next events are going to be in september because of the virus so if you're listening to this on time you may be able to catch some really cool events i'm actually giving a talk at pint of science this year in my city it's going to be online Uh, i'm talking about food as medicine and i'm really looking forward to the first time being a speaker rather than an organizer
0: all right it does sound very interesting i have to look into this
1: (laughs) yeah you should you should it covers so many topics not just in the sciences but you know in academia much more broadly as well it's it's a really broad church there's something for everyone cool